I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you wanna listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, Follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there and enjoy the new episodes of And The Writer Is. Yeah, we good. <laughs> I do the same thing when I, it's always trying to get that first. Um, I always try to not, especially when there's a music bed first of any sort, to try not to hear it until I'm in a in a booth and with the mic going. And it's amazing how many times we freestyled songs that you know are heard throughout the world, kind of thing. At least the parts of it, even if twenty percent of that first take has like that improv emotion in it, you know? Oh yeah, man. The, uh, I went through that when, uh, when I made a record with Emmylou Harris. Um, <clears throat> we did all live vocals. And I always made sure that Emmy sang two more right away. Mm. So, okay, well, it looks, looks like we have a take, Emmy. Would you, would you sing another vocal, please? And would you sing another one? And because the, uh, she's so good... That first vocal was likely it, but if there was a, a funny phrase or right. she, maybe she didn't like uh, the way she sang a line, then we had uh, two backups to go to. Yeah. And she said to me, that historically, whenever she went in to uh, try a vocal again a few weeks later, it was never as good. Yeah, of course. Of course. So in support of what you just said, spirit of the moment, freshness, all that... All right, here, I'm going to do the intro, and then we'll get into it. Okay. All right. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's seven-time Grammy-winning, multi-diamond certified maestro has constructed an incomparable discography as he continues to leave his mark on music history. Now entering his sixth decade as a writer-producer, this man has defined some of the most iconic careers and artists of all time and continues to push the boundaries of composition to this day. 
Day. In addition to transforming popular music with artists like U2, Peter Gabriel, and Bob Dylan, this guy's unequaled talent now underscores one of the biggest video games of all time. This Quebecois Canadian uh, began making prodigious productions at 17 before turning into a wizard with a star on Canada's Walk of Fame. What a pleasure to hear the story of this unique overachiever. And the writer is Daniel Lenoir. <laughs> Boy, Russell, that was quite an intro. My goodness. <laughs> I, th- I think maybe even some of that's accurate. Oh, yeah. yeah so, okay, yes, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, I always want to uh, start from the beginning because I think the the shocking thing of somebody once described... Um, I called you a wizard, but somebody once described the music industry in the context of Harry Potter to me. And, and you know, it's just describing muggles and wizards. You know, the people who've made a living at it are wizards. And so yeah. I always think it's really interesting to see how does a wizard uh, find his way to Hogwarts. So uh, to finish the uh, metaphor. So uh, in 1951, you're born. Mm-hmm. Then right. what happens? Um, well, where where were you born? Oh, I was born uh, in a place called Gatineau, which is in Quebec, about an hour from Montreal in Canada. Uh, and I grew up as a French Canadian child. Uh, Did you speak French growing up? Did your parents speak French? Yes, we spoke only French until I was nine or ten years old, and then then we moved to uh, Hamilton, which is near Toronto or near Buffalo on the Canadian side, and I switched to English at that time. Uh, what kind of music did you grow up doing? Did your parents play music in the house? Were they musicians too? I grew up listening to uh, French-Canadian uh, violin music. My grandfather was a pretty good uh, violoneux. Uh, violoneux is a fiddler. So he knew a lot of the, uh, the traditional jigs, and my dad also played. My dad wasn't as good as my grandpa. Um, but I, I grew up listening to a lot of these melodies, you know, beautiful melodies, uh, things like and those melodies um, are still in my head today, you know, so was, <clears throat> I'm glad they played them. And there was piano playing as well. But it was a self-entertaining uh, um, culture, you know. Uh, we didn't come from money, so there were just parties at home and the violins would come out at a certain point and the old guys would do this little tap dance and and it was all very charming. How old were you when you first started playing? I started playing when I was nine. Who introduced you to that? Just your parents saying, hey, now you have to go and play? I saw a clarinet player on TV, and I fell in love with the clarinet. Really? And I thought, one day I'd like to play the clarinet. And um, my mom used to give me a dollar a week to go to the movies And um, on Saturday. And on this one Saturday, I walked by a music store, and I saw something that looked a bit like a clarinet for a dollar. And I went in, and I bought it. But it was just a plastic penny whistle. Sure, of course. <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah. And I loved that penny whistle, and I played it, and I didn't go to the movies anymore. <laughs> and I got better and better at it, and I drove everybody crazy playing this little whistle. 
Awesome. That was the beginning. What's, I mean, there's not really a, there's, we were just talking before we started recording about how Canada produces such incredible talent. And we've talked about it on this podcast before because we've had so many of these legends from Canada. But why, you know, it, why do great musicians come from Canada? What is it about Canadian culture that supports young musicians? Well, in, speaking for myself, I, I just love what I was hearing on the radio as a child. We didn't have a record collection at home. I think we had two records, a Sarah Vaughan record and a Frank Sinatra record. Um, but I, uh, I love the radio and uh, I'm speaking now uh, from um, having lived in Hamilton. Hamilton is near, it's sandwiched between Detroit and, and Buffalo. So I got to hear a lot of soul music on radio. And I love what I heard. And I just became fascinated with all of it. And I wanted to uh, know more about it. And, and then uh, I got myself a little tape recorder and I started doing home recordings. It was an all-in-one recorder. It was just um, this little machine. It came with a mic and had speakers on board and everything. Hmm. And I started recording uh, my friends. And, and so that was beginning of the recording studio. But all along, I was listening to radio. And, you know, I, and I, I caught the wave, the coming of, of Motown, uh, the coming of uh, surf music. Um, I loved, uh, you know, the safaris when I was a kid, you know, listening to... Um, um, Wipeout and Surfer Joe was the flip side of Wipeout on, on the uh, on the forty five, and uh, you mentioned Paul Anka before and uh, uh, what's how does that song go? Um, You're so young and I'm so old. This, my darling, I've been told, but you and I will be as free as the birds up in the tree. Please, please. Be with me, Diana. So I heard Diana on radio when I was a kid. I thought, oh, that sounds great. I wonder who Diana is. And there were no music magazines. Uh, so all you had to look at was maybe the, the back of a vinyl record and there'd be one photograph and it was all this mystery. And I love the, uh, the world of mysteries. Uh, radio is my friend. Yeah. But to buy a tape recorder is such a sort of in Hamilton, Canada, feels like that's a a fairly random act to do when you you know you've you've at this point played other instruments but even just looking at a, a the back of a vinyl to buying a tape recorder is sort of a a jump somebody must say oh well you got to actually record this music on a on some tape um, or do you have any what what inspires you to say oh yeah you know what, I'm going to record my friends and make music well having when I found this little recorder, um, it seemed so instant. Uh, it was just a flea market, you know. I think it was for sale. On a, you know, somebody was moving down the street and they had a recorder. I think they may even have given it to me. Um, and I, I got to play my penny whistle, and I, I just press record, play the penny whistle, and then rewind, play, play back, press the play button. I hear my penny whistle. Isn't that great? And it went from there. Crazy. Do you remember your first recordings, what they were called, even of your friends? Do you have any of the first mu music that you recorded? I don't have the very first ones, no. But, you know, we had, there were some other uh, 
kids on the block that played and we, we formed a little band and they'd come over and I'd record them and it was so much fun because um, if somebody was too loud and they'd just say, okay, do you mind, you know, sitting back a little further away and the singer a little closer and sure. I started learning about about blend um, by proximity. I think it's, you know, 17 years old is, in you know, seems to be when you... I don't know if you called yourself a producer at that point, but that seems to be when you were doing your first recordings, right? Um, yes, I was doing... I was very busy as, as a teenager. Let's say 17, yeah. Uh, no, I never called myself a producer. I just had a little studio. And um, people come over and I'd, I'd help them out the best I could. And, and I just loved the whole process. Uh, but around that time, maybe I was a little older when this happened, I... I was connected with a uh, Christian music association in Canada, and they brought touring uh, quartets from all over the world, um, gospel quartets. And one of the stops was my studio, and we made a record in two days. So I made a lot of gospel records as a teenager. And uh, this was a very big part of my education because I got to hear uh, the structure of the four parts. Um, and uh, I was already pretty good with melody, you know, having come from Quebec with the violin melodies and all that. So I was able to to experience the position of the support roles to the melody. And, you know, without going to school, I was in the hotbed of, of a great education. Yeah, I mean, those people who've been on tour, they also, you know, they're not coming... They probably weren't just writing in the studio at this point. They were well rehearsed in what they were doing. So I imagine a lot of the parts that you were recording were well thought out between those the members of these bands. That's right. Uh, in the case of these gospel records, uh, whatever they were singing on tour is what went on the record. Did you did any of those songs ever make Canadian radio that you were recording? I mean, what's the first time you actually were able to walk into a store and buy? Oh, one okay. of your records. Um, well, uh, specifically the, this gospel um, chapter of my life, I guess these folks just um, sold records um, at their shows out of the trunks of their cars. I started a little record company because of this. I started uh, providing a service of um, a thousand pieces of vinyl and the artwork. And I, uh, my brother Bob and I, we, we had this little... Um, so we we record a band, and then they picked up the records two weeks later in boxes, and we, we had a little markup. We weren't a label; we just provided. We drove to Toronto and went did the mastering and blah blah blah, and had the records made and and handed them to people. I mean, that's a real record label. <laughs> it is. A, it's that's an independent record label. That's for an sure. independent record label. What was it called? We were, we were called Master Sound Recording. Amazing. <clears throat> um, did you want to move to Toronto or Detroit? I mean, what what um, keeps you in Hamilton at that point? Just age? Um, well, it's uh, it's where my mother set up the family, and uh, I tried to get a job in Toronto. I, I was a pretty good guitar player as as a teenager, so I was doing sessions in Toronto, and I I liked the whole scene, the recording scene, and but nobody wanted to give me a job, and so I, th I thought, well. I don't know, uh, you know, maybe there's other people that had the yeah. job and they didn't want yeah. to give it to me. And 
So I, I thought, well, I'll just keep pushing the button on my own recording studio and keep building it up, and maybe I don't need to get a job somewhere else. So I'm, I'm self-taught, really, um, with all that. When was the first time you worked with sort of an international artist, an American? Um, well, uh, uh, as a, I worked with Rick James, who was uh, from Buffalo. He's American. Um, Did he come to your, to your studio in Hamilton? He came to my studio in Hamilton because uh, I had a buddy, uh, Eddie Roth, played organ with Rick. And he said, well, maybe you should record with this kid in Hamilton. And that's how it started. Um, Is that I, intimidating? Oh, it was. I could not believe what was happening. He was so talented. He laid down the drums first and then the bass line. And he did all the overdubs himself. And I was on a four-track back then, so we would fill up three tracks, bounce them down, and then keep filling up tracks and doing bounces. Um, but in, in a matter of 20 minutes, Rick would have this incredible track pouring out of the speakers, and I was, I was speechless. I, I didn't even know how it happened because he was that talented and, and striking. It was unbelievable. I, <clears throat> I thank him for providing me with uh, yet another level of great education whenever you get to that next level you know that rick james level was it hard then to work with you know those touring gospel records or something or is it just sort of whatever showed up is just what you would do um, whatever showed up i was running a recording studio um i wasn't a songwriter then i was just um i was an accomplished player and i was happy to be that i was uh, i was a I'm a hired guitar player for touring bands in in Canada. Um, <clears throat> why why weren't you a songwriter? I don't know. I just I was happy to be uh, of service to other people. I I really liked the recording studio and and the uh, the innovation that came our way, and I felt that I like being helpful to people. What made you want to be a, a writer? What made you end up writing at all? At a, that came much later. Um, let's move the clock forward to when I was working with Brian Eno. Um, I made a lot of ambient records with Brian, and I, I loved him so much. I thought, man, this is a godsend that he came into my life. And I like that he was really devoted to uh, ambient music, which was a pretty obscure music, but we were... Uh, we spent all our time uh, processing sounds, and it, it was just the most fantastic thing that happened in my life at that time. And after having made a bunch of ambient records, um, he started a little label called Opal Records with his wife at the time, Anthea Norman Taylor. And Anthea said to me, would you like to make a record? for our label? And I never thought of making a record because I was, you know I was a studio rat. And uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll get started. And I, that's my, that was my first batch of songs. Crazy. How did you meet Brian? I met Brian uh, through these two women from Toronto. They were called the Time Twins. Um, we made some demos together, and they were very inventive, and super smart girls, that you know, and they love all the crazier stuff in the studio. Um, they took those demos to New York, bumped into Eno, played Eno the, the recordings. He said, oh, these sound 
curiously inventive. And how, do, how did you make this? I said, well, there's this kid in Hamilton, and um, we like working with him. So Eno was, uh, had a girlfriend in Toronto at that time, so he... Uh, he just called up and booked a session. I had never heard of him. <laughs> and he just shows up at your door. And it's like, right. yeah. Did you think of what you were doing as inventive, or when you're, you know, as you were saying, you're making music sort of of service to these artists that are coming in? Were you thinking of it in terms of this is my stamp on this music, or are you? Is it just naturally what you do is what Brian heard as inventive? I think we always had an inclination to uh, uh, to the un- go to the unusual. I worked with a good record producer at that time, uh, Billy Bryans, um, and he was always pushing me to let's let's weird it up a bit, you know, try this kind of a sound. And what about making the uh, the detail really loud in the front, a character put it in the background. And he was always a supporter of, and he was a good drummer himself. So we. Uh, um, we had a nice relationship and made some. Uh, he was the one who was producing the Time Twins, for example. You know, yeah. not me. I was, I was the, I was the studio engineer. Um, but I, uh, I like the inventive stuff, and I, I always had a, a liking for uh, going in a different direction than other people. You know, doing ambient music, which obviously, you know a lot of the stuff that you've done, you know, when you're talking about fast forward 40 years later and you're doing scoring for video games and whatnot, you've done ambient music on and off for years. Um, It's sometimes really hard for people to define the difference between music and songs. You know, when do you do music? When do you produce songs? Well, the more we do this, uh, the more collisions we, we experience. You know, the, um, I was talking to Wayne on the way over here. Uh, if we could segue to a, a U2 song uh, called uh, uh, Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Um, it started out with a drum beat that Larry had played on, on, on a jam. that uh, And the jam didn't go anywhere, but the beat was always my favorite. And so I cherished that beat and I did some work on it, you know, cut it up a little bit and, and played it back for the band. And uh, Edge came in with a jing, zang, on top of it. And it, it became this, became that song. So who would think that a drum beat would be the uh, the seed for for the, the message of that song? So uh, the point being that we never know where they come from. Uh, Sometimes we, we might start with a texture, um, but for sure the one thing that uh, is constant uh, is the beginning always has to have magic, and that's mm-hmm. what we look for. When you say cut up, you know, now people who are listening to this are used to uh, you copy and paste on, you know, Pro Tools or whatever their DAW is, but you were quite literally cutting tape and moving <laughs> moving patterns around. Um, describe what it's like to hear a drum pattern in real time and then think, okay, I'm going to cut this actual tape and put it in, uh-huh. in order that you're hearing. Or was it always an experiment? Well, the uh, specifically uh, in the days of, uh, you know, tape recorders, um, 
uh, I would just make copies. Uh, I always chopped my 24 tracks, so the drums, you know, were likely recorded on six or eight tracks. And uh, if I found a section I liked that deserved uh, to be repeated, then we'd make a 24-track copy and then chop that into the original 24-track. Yeah. And hopefully the levels are such that they <laughs> right. it all works. The bass drum always suffered a little bit. Oh, no, the copy's not quite as nice. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to, we'd compensate. And then... Um, but what's nice about that, it gets you thinking about arrangements. Like, oh, okay, well, that, that's going pretty good. Okay, we're at the uh, one, thir uh, one minute 37 mark. Why don't we bring in that fill here? So you know, to cut something together was a lot of fun. Um, and, and specifically with uh, Larry Mullen, he, um, he always played to a click. Uh, and so we had the luxury of fixed time. So the edits always worked out pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> with a drummer like that, I'm sure. Um <laughs> So, you know, you, at this point, you've, let's go back and a little bit the chronologically, you meet Brian, you guys are doing ambient music, um, and he's really the artist in a, a lot of it, but you guys were doing it together. Did you feel like you wanted to be an artist at all during that? Or were you, insp or were you just enjoying being behind the scenes? I was, I was enjoying being, uh, uh Serving Brian Eno's vision. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. And we, when we got into making these ambient records, I stopped doing everything else. I thought, this is more interesting than what I've been doing otherwise. And I just went full force with Brian. I devoted my entire life to making these records with him. And he was the kindest person, the most inventive, and the, the records were strange. And, <laughs> and I thought, this man's vision it really suits me. And he was very, very kind to me, and he included me uh, as a composer in some of the tracks because he he uh, he figured that the labor that I was pouring into this uh, qualified as composition ultimately. And um, agreed. It's I can't say enough about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, of it's a godsend. When um, how does you know you two shows up in the picture? Young for them. Young for you, how does, you know, how does that happen? How is it that you end up, you know, you're m making ambient music with a legend, you guys are now collaborators, and then in comes one of the hotter bands, but they still were nowhere near, you know, what we know of now. How do they show up, and why then, if you're so inspired by doing this, you know, Brian's albums... Why work with you too? Well, it's a bit of a funny story uh, because um, Brian Eno got the invitation to work with you too, and he said his response was, "I'm not producing any records anymore. Just making my own work, and I'm not interested." And um, a demo had been sent, and um, I said, right, "Well, let's at least listen to what they sent, shall we?" And he was living at my house at that time, you know. And so we listened to, to the recordings. I said, I don't know, the kid's got something, you know. It's, it's, check out this thing, and he's hitting those high notes. That's kind of rare, isn't it? He's like, I don't know, man. I don't want, I don't, I'm not producing records anymore. I said, come on. Let's at least go and see them. And, and you know, see. And he agreed to at least have a meeting and we went to Ireland together. I said, listen, man, if you don't want to produce them, let me do it, but you should make an introduction. 
and um, would you at least do that for me? And he said, okay. So we went to see them in, in Dublin, and um, Bono being the politician that he is, he convinced me, you know, and myself that we were now producing the new U2 record. <laughs> do you remember what the demo was? Um, well, I, you know, I listened to uh, the records they had already made with Steve Lillywhite, and they were great. And the demos were... Um, I don't remember specifically what sure. they were. I think there was a lot of... Because um, um, when Bono sings, if if the song is not fully formed, he still sings as if it is formed. Mm -hmm. And he convinces people that he's singing lyrics. When uh, when you start listening closely, <laughs> he's like, oh, maybe he's not... So it's the they, curse of listening to a good singer, too. It's, it's hard to tell what a good song is. It's hard to tell <laughs> if, it, if it's a demo or not because everything yeah. he sings probably just sounded like... But he, he was very, very convincing. We we liked what we heard. Um, we thought we were hearing finished songs, but uh, um, that was not entirely true, of course. But uh, some of the playbacks were, uh, we're dri driving around Dublin with the whole band of me, you know, in the back, and it's blaring, and it's like uh, lots of arms waving. and and. Uh, were yeah. you living in Dublin during the recording of it? Oh, absolutely. I was li living at the Gresham Hotel. Did you like that? I love Dublin. I love the Gresham Hotel. Me and Eno used to stop. They had these little um, casino arcades on the way to work, and we'd always stop because Eno liked to gamble. <laughs> and he always won. Really? Oh, we always had a little what was lunch his money. Game? <laughs> I think it was just like the um, one-armed bandits, and, and you know, just it's pretty low-level stuff. <laughs> but we always, always got to the studio with a little pocket change. <laughs> That's really the first album that becomes an international success for you as a producer writer, right? Uh, the uh, the U two uh, work went very did international. that. How did that change your motives as a musician? You know, you have such. I mean, it's it's one thing when you're working on music that's respected. And stuff that's successful in, in your home country. It's, you know, you've worked with obviously some legends at that point, Rick and Brian, and Brian and whatnot. But it's a different thing when it's you're sort of watching a worldwide phenomenon yeah. happen. Well, I was always a very insecure um, teenager and young man. I'm still that way now. Um, you know. Uh, because I, I was French and it took me a while to learn English and I always felt, and I never went to school, so I, I always felt a little inferior, but I knew that I was uh, pretty good in the studio and I, was, I had my talent, so. Um, but when I got to, to Ireland, um, I was able to um, apply my skills and my knowledge to, to the work at hand, and I think that's what... Uh, the fellows in U2 appreciated about me. Uh, um, yeah, I was a pretty good engineer and that, but they appreciated that I had musical knowledge and I was able to help them with harmonies and maybe the bass line should go here. And and they, they figured that, okay, well, this guy's musical. Yeah. And I, I, knew, uh, I knew more because I had studied music. I knew more about music than they did in the studied way. And I, they really appreciated that I... Uh, that I was able to bring that to the sandbox. Um, and I loved Larry's drumming. And, and I, 
He was a great hi-hat player. He always had, you know, one of the best at the time. And and I made a simple suggestion to him. I said, you know what you're doing on the hi-hat? Let's move the timbali over here and do half the figure on the timbali. So, and then opened up this whole box of possibilities based on his hi-hat skills, hitting other things, hitting things other than just the hi-hat. Sure. And then, and then that's it. We've got some new beats out of it. It's what makes uh, producers that, um, you know, there there aren't that many producers who want to hit random things and record random things, you know. <laughs> but there, there are the certain producers who can't wait to, you know, hit that file cabinet over there to record that because that's gonna that's gonna have more attack than you know other things that you you know than a normal kit. You know, okay, the I'll, idea of just playing with stuff. I'll give is you fun. a little secret here. You yeah. go you go to Chinatown. You get one of those little fans. You know, they have a, a hand painted fans like a for fanning your face when the, when the, when there's a heat wave, and you get a pencil and you use the uh, the eraser head of the pencil and you put the fan really close to the mic and you hit it softly boom and you turn up your mic pre and you get a bass drum sound out of it try that on did you ever use that on a record that we know or anything um, else well we were have doing, you used it a lot uh hey wayne let's go to chinatown and pick up some of those <laughs> yeah, <fans. exactly. laughs> um i was making records uh back in canada now making records with um a group called Martha and the Muffins, and they liked all that stuff. So we, those records have a lot of those kind of sounds. So on fun. Them. <laughs> um, you know, you follow up that year, and you know, so for Peter Gabriel becomes also just a massive phenomenon. It's sort of right when MTV is just peaking. It feels like he, you know, these videos are massive. Mm. The songs are just so big. It's you know you're starting to get nominated and for Grammys and, you know, songs are just, hits are just pouring out. You know, I know that Joshua Tree comes on the heels of that. Do you start thinking that it's easy? Oh, I do, you even, do you even look at things like charts? And were you, were you into the business of what was happening around you? Or were you still such a studio rat that you were studioing let's get one thing straight nothing is easy <laughs> nothing we just hope that we bump into some magic and once we have that we add to it that's the formula and how does magic come our way blood sweat and tears and patience um but in regards to you know suddenly there's hit records i remember uh come from LaGuardia to Manhattan and the taxi driver had the radio on and I heard one of my productions uh, and I was in tears. Do you remember which song it was? I think it was um, it was one of the U2 songs. It might have been Pride in the Name of Love. Yeah. Did your family understand yeah. what was happening in Hamilton? Um Well, yeah, my my mom, um, she was so proud that uh, all those years in the basement had uh, had uh, come to this uh, this new position. Now, uh, the um, 
Um, <clears throat> let's segue to... Um, I take my mom as my date to the Grammy Awards and I win the Producer of the Year Award and she comes backstage with me. And um, Tony Bennett got this, got one that year and she <laughs> uh, and she got to hang with Tony and I'm, my mom's very good looking and Tony took a shine to my mom. I look over and Tony Bennett is giving my mom a foot massage in the back of Radio City Music Hall. I was like, my goodness, you know. <laughs> how about how many kids get to do that for their moms? You know? <laughs> Tony Bennett gave um, And it made her sister, uh, she, uh, it made her sisters jealous. What? Tony Bennett is giving you a foot massage? Like, for my mom, uh, for my mom's era, you know, this is a pretty uh, big I mean, stuff. legendary. <laughs> Tony hitting on my mom. That's good. <laughs> Dude, that's that's shocking. Um, between the you know those years of So and Joshua Tree, after this, you know, there's it's the first time you work with Bob Dylan. Neville Brothers in the '80s couldn't have gotten bigger than that. Um, but if one of the things that's most interesting is how different these projects are from each other. Did you always seek out artists that were different from the last artist? Because I would imagine a U2 comes up, 6,000 U2 wannabes, you know, then call you to say, will you produce this? And you jump ship from that because you're like, that's what I do with U2, but I'm going to do something different. Who is advising you to do that? Was that instinctual to write on different things? Well, I was looking to uh, broaden my education and so my going to, uh, you know, let's talk about the Neville Brothers some, for a minute. I, I never thought I would make a, a record with them, but I wanted to go to New Orleans because I wanted to hear um, where the funk had come from and to be, because, you know, in Canada, we, at that time, there wasn't a lot of great bass playing and the, the bass lines that I admired had come from the South. And so I decided to go to New Orleans to uh, to hear some of that music and um, sure enough, I heard great bass lines. I heard great bass lines coming from tubas. Huh. And I thought to myself, oh, that's where a lot of the funk comes from. Because the tuba players in those great marching bands were playing things like bump, 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 And the drums, I thought, this is it. That's where the meters got their thing. I don't think they got it from the upright bass. I think they got it from the tuba. And um, well, I loved it all. I just soaked it all in. And and uh, I thought, okay, I've come to the right place to learn more about bottom end, about bass lines. And then uh, word got out that I was in town and an introduction was made and I, I did some demos with the, the Neville Brothers and we just went from there. I made the demos in my apartment. <laughs> I had a 12-track Akai at this point. <laughs> it recorded on kind of a videotape. Sure. <laughs> and uh, I think I had a built-in... No, I had a Hill mixer. And a 12-track Akai. And I mixed down onto a, a Sony cassette machine, a little, a little, uh, a really nice little Sony cassette machine. It had Dolby built on board and everything. And I recorded the Nebels, and it, it went fantastic. And... I tried, well, maybe it's okay to let the cat out of the bag now, but two of the songs on that record were, uh, I used the cassette mixes. So we mastered from cassette. Crazy. 
It, the ones you did in the, like, that you started in... That. I recorded in my apartment, and those songs, those mixes show up on Yellow Moon, and they came from cassette. <laughs> Amazing. Um, working with Bob Dylan, you know, he's he's uh, from Minnesota. It's probably from north of where you, from Hamilton, you know. Um, did you grow up <clears throat> listening to, you know, th that seems to be the first one where it's really before you know his his introduction to the music industry is before your time yes you know what's it like to work with someone like that versus you two who is kind of the new kid on the block and then mm. you have someone like bob what's yeah. it like to have to follow up um, somebody's legacy already well the the introduction to work with bob uh the matchmaking was done by bono um he um, he saw Bob and he said you should work with this kid. I think it'd be great together. And so th that's how that came to be. Thank you, Bono. Um, it was quite a. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not very starstruck because I've always been working with um, in the recording studio. So we're we're used to, um, to working with people who have you know big reputations and so on. But it was, uh, it was quite a, uh, if we could use a contemporary term, quite a challenge to work with Bob because he had done so much great work. And um, if I was reading between the lines of the invitation that I was meant to be. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. the guy who might bring him back to visibility with a, with a masterpiece of sorts, you know. So I, I knew I had to make a masterpiece, and that's a lot of pressure. Do you like that pressure? I like the pressure. I want to make masterpieces. I don't want to make average records that people forget. I want to make records that touch hearts, that live on. I was going to ask you this later, but, you know, right after you know, the first Bob album comes out, you have... You've had success with a lot of these people, but the next phase really is that all these artists came back to you. Most most producers <clears throat> they they work with an artist and they move on to something else, and the artist moves on to something else, and no one has an attention span and no one has loyalty. You oh, know, this okay. is not the industry let's, for that. Let's so, talk about attention span and loyalty. I'm glad you mentioned those because when I was making records with those folks, they had my full attention. No distractions. I never talked about other work. I was not picking up the phone, lining up the next thing. I was completely devoted to the matter at hand. 
And that's a big part of why we made records that uh, uh, resonated true to the artists. And I would say that that's probably why I got called back. I said, Danny's not distracted and he loves us and he wants to do his best work with us. Do you think producers and writers today have any hope in being focused? <laughs> oh. I mean, you know, I know a couple. I know a couple guys who are who are really good about turning everything off once well, they walk in the door. But I mean, ask so Wayne. Just sitting right there. I, I I'm not on the phone while we're in the studio. It's uh, we our values have not shifted too much that way. Um, the coming of the uh, the cell phone has meant that uh, people are just automatically more distracted. And I'm not saying that in a critical way it's just a different time you know mm -hmm. i'll tell you a funny telephone story though back to dublin in the uh, when i first worked with you two in order to make a phone call out of ireland you had to book it a week ahead <laughs> if you wanted to call internationally for me to call my mom i'd have to say all right saturday morning at 10 <laughs> i mean it wasn't that long ago i think you think of that as being you know an old gramophone where it's you know <laughs> The, the earpiece to the ear and you're holding the bass on the other hand. I don't think that people realize that that's not that long ago to have to do that. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but, you know, this next this next phase, you have Octung Baby and us, you know, for Peter Gabriel. Octung Baby, you too, obviously. Um, again, you get these sort of, you get the waves that are going along with these <clears throat> artists. Are you finding any new voices in your productions for yourself? Were you, was the trying to create a masterpiece, was that pushing you in a certain way to create something different than you had previously? Or were you still serving them as, you know, songwriter, um, producer relationships? Well, what we haven't talked about yet is um, what people are going through in their lives. And that's probably, uh, um, the psychologist in me uh, understood that very early on, that I'm not just here to record songs and we don't know where they come from. And, you know, uh, I'm here to make a record with somebody who has feelings, who has lived through something, maybe uh, a lost love or uh, maybe there's something po politically happening, as was the case in Ireland at that time. Um, what are these people being driven by? in their lives. And so when I realized how important that was, I pushed that button and made sure mm -hmm. that I paid attention. So our philosophical exchanges, you know, the, the talks at dinners and uh, going to a club, uh, uh, singing in the rain, crying in the rain, dancing in the rain, whatever was happening, I started paying attention to all that. And I realized at that time that my responsibility was to make sure that that got on the record mm. and that and that would make for a truer record in the end and not just a good song and a good singer. I mean, nothing wrong with that, but the records I was making with people at that time, I knew that they had something to say that was coming from inside. Working with such political artists, even Emmylou Harris later, you know, and but but Bob Dylan and, and Bono are pretty vocal. Did you ever um did you ever disagree politically or were you pretty much in sync with them? Mm. I don't remember ever having uh disagreements, uh, philosophical disagreements with people. Uh I was always uh interested in 
in what they had to say because a lot of these people had lived a lot more life than myself. You know, I, uh, I never went to school. I was isolated. Uh, but people like Eno had been to art school and had already been to New York uh, making Remain in Light. So mm. I thought to myself, this is the man who made Remain in Light. And I'm just going to shut up and listen to what he has to say. And so I became the sponge of information. And I, and I thought to myself, for a kid who never went to school, I'm now in the best school in the world. And I'll just listen to what people have to say. Uh, but when they asked for my opinion, I would, uh, I would give them uh, a proper opinion. And usually it was a, a very educated one. And uh, I was informed and I was able to offer advice not only uh, about uh, how music can be constructed, but how um, their voice could be heard within a song. Did you have a personal life? I mean, th with all the amount of music that you're doing and the devotion you've had to music, did you have a personal life? Well, that, that's pretty interesting. Uh, could I diplomatically say that I gave up a lot? Yeah. Um, uh, when I worked in England with with Peter Gabriel, I you know we made that soul record in a little, in a farm in a barn really, and the farmhouse I lived at the top floor of the farmhouse and I lived for nothing else. I took no calls and, and uh, I had uh, no social life. Uh, never went out much and um, I had a girlfriend at the time. She visited a couple of times and she thought I was getting fat. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> I was. <getting> fat. <laughs> was she right? <laughs> she was right. Everything is cream on cream. What's, yeah, right. for, what's, what's for dinner? Cream yeah. asparagus. What's for dessert? Cream on creams. <laughs> yeah, so even in the morning, you get that scone with the. It's like, it's what it's. I I always read it as carotid cream, which is not correct, but it's not incorrect either. <laughs> oh, like, cream! Like, you don't know the meaning of it. I tell you, man. I mean, I'm recording in a. I'm recording in a, in a barn, one window, and I look out the window. I see a cow, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. The cow's face is on the window, and I know we're having cream for yeah, dinner. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Looking at you, being like, you better enjoy this. This is um, not easy being a cow. But uh, <laughs> sacrifices is what you're talking about. What are we willing to, to give up for our, our uh, first love? And in my case, a lot, my friend, a lot. Mm. Yeah. What do you do it for? Um, it's what I know best. It's what I do best. It's, it's what I love the most. Um and uh, what it has done for me, it has allowed me to be surrounded by people I admire, which is one of my latest mm -hmm. slogans. Um, I'm very, very fortunate to be uh, in the presence of people that are devoted hearts. Uh, Wayne Lorenz is sitting right there. He's my co-producer. Uh, he doesn't like me to call him that because he likes to be in the shadows. <laughs> but uh, without Wayne, I wouldn't be uh, as good as I am currently. Um, that's interesting that, you know, at the end of that sentence, you just say currently, um, staying up on trends as a musician doesn't, um, always really make you, you as a musician. You know, I, I was, was watching this masterclass with this author and, and they were talking about how they're, um, that, that maybe what they do just isn't 
it it just isn't right for right now. But okay. that doesn't mean that they don't just keep doing what they do and they mm. stay focused on themselves and on the, their craft rather than chasing trends. Um, mm-hmm. You've managed to get in and out of different eras doing mm. what you do. I know we've sort of talked about that, but I don't know why why stay current. Um, well, and how if, do you stay? If current? you try and stay current, then it's not going to happen. I don't think. And then you're, you're chasing something that's already happened. Mm-hmm. But getting back to uh, a magic beginning of something that will always be current um, as as a bedrock. Um, you know, um, I have my tools. We can. Uh, I hear current music that has Roland 808 on it. I still have my Roland 808. In fact, we're working on a track right now that has a Roland 808 on it, and it sounds current. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, it's a very old box, but, you know, and it, it's still... Uh, um, um, I don't know what to say about current. Um, I, I appreciate that some of the... Uh, some of the hip hop records I hear have uh, some of the best fidelity. You know, as, as a recordist, uh, I'm always uh, always have an ear open to what sounds the best, and I, I I've been very impressed with you know, what I've heard from hip hop people, and um, so I see that as a bit of a, a fidelity benchmark to operate by. Uh, have you wanted to work in hip hop? Have you worked in hip hop? It's kind of. Uh, odd that I haven't because I'm very rhythmic and um, uh, I guess the closest being that I, I uh, co-wrote and produced a track for um, Red Dead Redemption, you know, we did uh, um, a song called Unshaken um, with D'Angelo. We did it in New York City and um, and that's a beautiful sounding track. It's got all that fidelity, great bottom end and... Um, Obviously, fabulous singing from D'Angelo. So that's as close as I've come to the hip-hop world. And I was hoping that would be a little bit of an advert out there for people to yeah. call me up. Well, th- maybe this is. The, well, well I, I promise you, you'll get some <laughs> phone calls after this. Um, you know, I just want to give some shout-outs to some of the albums that you did from where we left off just because they became uh, so influential. But Time Out of Mind for Bob Dylan was really, you know, maybe is to me that's one of his biggest albums in the last you know certainly in the last 30 years it's maybe the biggest uh influence at least for me as a writer um willie nelson you get to work with willie then you have all that you can't leave behind with you two another one that another big album do you appreciate it differently as your discography goes on? When you're in those moments and you have another hit, is there? do you ever question if the next one's going to come? Do you not even think about that? I try and not think about uh, uh, whether it's going to keep coming my way or not. Uh, but I, when I look back at those records that we made uh, at that time, I realized that they were part of what we were going through um, as technicians, as human beings, uh, what we were going through emotionally. And uh, I I look back and I see blocks of usually five-year blocks where there was an, an inclination to go a certain direction. Um, when... Uh, 
when we were making the ambient records in Hamilton, we then went to Ireland to work with you two and some of those sonic um, um, values, let's call them, made their way to those people's work. I wouldn't make a record like that now, but at that time is what we were most excited about. And so we, we caught, <clears throat> uh, we managed to make a record at a time of, of, uh, of excitement about what we were doing and and that's probably the most important lesson that you know the to catch it to snap the camera that you just take that picture oh we just caught the light was just right and you know and there was a little you know star on the edge of the glasses and blah blah yep we got it we captured it and you try and recreate that photograph and it'll never happen so we uh, that's why they're called records <laughs> it's meant to be a recording of something that was happening at that special that was happening at that time. What happens throughout the, you know, uh, it starts to amp up in the 90s and the aughts and so on. You really start pursuing being an artist yourself and putting out your own albums. Yeah. Um, why <clears throat> why <clears throat> make the jump? Why do that to yourself? Being an artist sucks. Uh, <laughs> it's hard as shit. I know. Everyone's everyone's looking at you now. You went from being the guy who got away with, you know, being able to do something as weird as sledgehammer and sit back there and be like, "Hi, you have to go and perform that now. Have a blast." And and now you have yeah. to go and why would um, you do that to yourself? Why be an artist? I know it's. I asked that question myself. Um, <laughs> well. Anthony and Norman Taylor and Brian Eno are responsible. They said, why don't you make a record? Oh, okay. What am I going to make a record about? <laughs> and I, at that time, I thought, well, I will make a record about, uh, the songs will be about what how I grew up. That way they'll be true. Um, so I wrote songs about my family, uh, about my parents splitting up, um, about the native... Uh, um, community near where I grew up on the Grand River, and I, I just I just started writing songs about what I knew, um, and it's I was wise enough at that time because I wasn't a child. I was wise enough to know that that's what resonates with other people. Ultimately, if you make something that's true to yourself, then they might feel that they're involved because people like truth. That's the basis of comedy. <laughs> True. And also vulnerability. Um, Ricky Reed, one of our friends and producers, said that he was telling me that how vulnerability is is the currency of social media now and because people are so used to putting up walls everywhere. And the okay. idea of being able to say, you know, to to say my parents split up is already, you know, for you to say that yeah, is is already a vulnerable thing to do. Maybe you're used to saying it, but it's not less vulnerable for me who's hearing that for the first time. Well, that's a good point. Uh, in modern times, we like to show our best side all the time. <clears throat> I'm having a, a great time, and here's a photograph to prove it. Mm -hmm. um, but come song... Uh, if you if you had a broken heart, you can't, you're not going to say, hey, I'm dating every night of the week. No, I have a broken heart. And that's what has to make its way to the song. Um, uh, I guess maybe... Uh, did you ever say anything in any of your songs... Sorry to interrupt, but did you ever say anything in any of your songs that you felt so vulnerable that you weren't sure if you should release it? 
Yes, um, I felt that way about uh, some of my songs. I thought, well, maybe it's a little too personal. and uh, uh, But um, I changed some of the names of of the characters in my songs. You know, my uh, uh, my mother's name is not Louise, but uh, this Jolie Louise is about my mother, you know. And uh, so <clears throat> I think all writers... Um, right from personal experience and we may change the, the names of our characters you know but do you enjoy touring do you enjoy performing out i'm enjoying uh, playing live now more than ever um uh, let's move to uh immediate times current times um i'm writing songs with uh johnny shepherd and rocco de luca and we have a little band called Heavy Sun, so it's Daniel Lanois and Heavy Sun. And um, when I play with these guys, I feel a real kinship. Uh, I feel that feeling that I had as a as a kid in my first band is there now. And I appreciate that these guys also have, uh, they're all hungry and everybody wants to do it. And when we play live, we we have a, a lovely exchange and, and that's what, people in the audience appreciate about us. They, they, they feel that we're really taking a risk and, and we have this communication and it's, it's pretty far away from cookie cutter uh, and, uh, you know, a, a tour in production where, you know, every lighting move is connected with, with the audio. And so we're the opposite of that. We, we, uh, we're very resourceful at a given moment on stage and I really appreciate that it's pulling... Um, what I have in me as a, as a guitar player, um, I like to respond to other people so um, I can rise to the occasion at a dynamic moment, and that's very special. What's success for that band? That band, uh, they're really... Uh, uh, we really enjoy the songwriting process, and it's part of what we're here today for is, is about songwriting. Um, Johnny Shepherd is our organist. Uh, he, he came up in a Baptist church. He never, never sang outside of church until recent times. And uh, uh, Johnny's enjoying writing songs with myself and Rocco. And uh, being a church man, a song has to have a message. And he will not be involved if the song is not, doesn't have, a, uh, will not make its way to joy and provide... Uh, you know, something for uh, a listener to uh, has to raise the spirit. So I like that about Johnny. And then Rocco um, is a great man. He's a, a great bohemian, a great poet, and he keeps an eye on the lyrics. And um, as I do, but I'm the guy with Wayne. I'm at the consult trying to make sense of it all. And so we've really got to, but everybody's hungry. We want to make a great record. We want to play live. We've got a little West Coast tour coming in May. In fact, let's make this the advertising part of the show. We play the Ace Theater downtown Los Angeles on May the 14th. And we're really looking forward to it. We're hoping folks come out. We hope the virus doesn't get us between now and then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if it does, let it get all of us. Um, the, uh, let's just jump to Red Dead Redemption because I know we, you know, think that's mm -hmm. so it's kind of an outlier of things that you're working on. Um, yeah. why work in video games? The Red Dead Redemption, the video game uh, 
Um, that invitation came out of the blue. Um, I just got a call. Uh, I was already doing a show in New York City, uh, the Poisson Rouge, and we uh, we stopped by the uh, Rockstar Games office, and they showed us some of the scenes. Uh, I happen to have some music with me. Uh, Wayne came came to the meeting with me, and we just plugged in a few things, and it seemed to connect with with the game. Um, I had some uh, these crazy recordings I did with uh, a great Canadian artist by the name of Venetian Snares. And so we we had some of that in our pocket. We plugged it in and said, wow, you know, it's like because there was a lot of action in, in the game. And that stuff kind of resonated automatically. And I liked that these guys were, um, they were on fire and they were doing something fresh and, and they and, uh, and they said, you want to work with D'Angelo? I said, what? Okay. <laughs> I love D'Angelo. Uh, we met D'Angelo. Off we went. And um, it was a nice way to make music because we were serving something mm-hmm. that already existed. It was a Western. Um, and uh, the tug of war being that being a Western, there might be an inclination to use uh, the rusty in- instruments of that time, you know, mm-hmm. bring out the banjos and the mandolins and the acoustic pianos and the bowerons, and that would all be fine. But um, I like to think that the music we make, um, sidesteps the uh, obedience to a genre. So we were able to use uh, the Taurus bass pedals and the, and the strings on the, the Mellotron. There's a Mellotron in the corner right there, I saw it, man. Joe's onto it too. <laughs> um, and so to be able to provide, um, um, have music touch people's hearts without them thinking about genre or the specifics of an instrument. But this is where we come in because we're good at manipulating sound. And so to manipulate sound to the point of uh, beyond identification. Mm. I like that as an yeah. idea. And that game, uh, that was part of the uh, the invitation and challenge to provide music to that game. And then songs, they wanted me to make songs. Uh, so I wasn't just a, a, you know, a scoring musician. Uh, we did plenty of that, but they wanted me to produce songs. And I said, okay, um, they talked about Willie Nelson, and I was going to write a song with Willie. Um, uh, Willie was in Hawaii. He was, he was stuck because there was a hurricane, and we never wrote the song. And uh, I said, what are we going to do about that? So I, I wrote the song by myself. Uh, I was talking to one of the Rockstar Games guys. I said, you know, some, a good old friend of mine just moved to England. We never saw her again because she didn't want to be around the cruel world anymore. She mm. wanted to start a family. Nothing to do with the cruel world. He said, that's a great title. Write the song. I wrote Cruel World, and that's the one Willie sang once we got him out of the hurricane. (laughs) (laughs) What do you feel like you haven't accomplished? Um, All the, so many, there's so many accolades, so many records sold. Is there anything you wish you would have done? I think the, the rhythmic, part of me has not been fully expressed and we've got uh we got a track on the burner right now at the uh, at the shop uh called under the heavy sun and it is a bad dog of a groove and i'm very very excited about it it's made up of three ingre- uh, rhythmic uh, components uh we cut the track to a rhythm king which is a little beatbox and it's got sort of a, a janitor uh, with a broomstick in the corner 
and then uh, and then I by hand we overdubbed an, an 808. I found a really good 808 pattern, and I had to dropped it in manually two bars at a time. And then uh, a buddy of mine uh, came in to play acoustic drums, and that worked out pretty good. I went through uh, with Wayne went through uh, his performance of a fine tooth comb, two bars here and a fill there, and but we put the whole thing together with uh, technology and uh, and a killer bass line and uh johnny shepherd our singer is is uh provided such a great vocal so I, i'm keep my fingers crossed that it might be a little uh, a little dance club hit you know when we're done there you go <laughs> so we'll go to this next segment i'm gonna list five things just tell me what comes to the top of your head okay. five for five <laughs> let's start with brian eno well, Brian Eno was my mentor and, uh, and a brilliant mind, uh, a brilliant mind then and a brilliant mind now. Uh, I can't say enough about this guy. Uh, he was a great teacher to me. And we had a, um, he always encouraged innovation. And thank you, Brian. Um, the lessons uh, I learned then, I'm st still using the same technique these days. What a great human being and the planet is a better place with Brian. <laughs> Bono. Bono is a great friend. I, I've sat on a couch with him, much like the couch I'm sitting on now. We keep a Beta 58 stuck in the crack of the cushions. <laughs> and then, you know, when track starts smoking, I hand the 58 over, he takes it, and off he goes. Uh, he's a great improv specialist, you know, even in the absence of a fully... Uh, done lyric, Bono will deliver something that will inspire the next level of writing. And how special is that? A great man. Peter Gabriel. When I walked up the garden path to meet Peter Gabriel, I saw him. He was about 200 feet away. And I I thought, I know him. I know that man from before, from another life. I knew he was a relative. Now, it gets into the mystical part of, of myself, uh, but I, I felt that I knew him already. And I thought he was gentle, he was hyper-intelligent and very inventive, and I thought, I've come to the right place. I know this guy, and we're going to make great music together. I thought he was a brother. Let's go with Wayne. Uh, uh, Wayne Lorenz, uh, we've been all over the world together. Um, um, Wayne is a history major, so there's never a dull lunch hour. <laughs> Say, Wayne, 1979, Russia. Dan, let me tell you. <laughs> and off we go. Um, uh, Wayne has great taste, and um, he keeps me from stepping into the tar pits of record making. And uh, you know, he'll let me go on, on my way for a while, then... Uh, uh, the next at the the next history lesson at lunch, he'll say. By the way, have you thought about and it might be good if you think about this and that and the other thing. I think I think Wayne might be right, and then I go in the studio and I do something about it. So that's the mark of a great um, mate and and co-producer. Uh, he waits for the right moment and brings something to my attention. Your mother. Uh, my dear mother put up with a recording studio in her basement for a decade. And uh, 
the coming and going of reggae bands. Rick James, she was making bacon and eggs for all kind of people she'd never met. We all had one bathroom, so they were all traipsing through the house upstairs. Bless her heart. Um, um, she, my mother never told me what to do. Not once did she say, you know, you should be careful to do this and that and the other thing. Never. She let me do what I wanted to do, and bless her heart. <laughs> you mentioned the that we didn't talk about really your spiritual side or your mystical side or however you just described it. Mm-hmm. Describe it now. Um, I've always uh, been aware of what I call the force. The force is something that lives outside of one's skills and it's what one might be driven by in a subconscious way. And um, the force has been with me since I was a child. And there have been a few times when I was struck by the force. I was struck by the force in Mexico, in the west country of England, by the River Liffey, in a canoe with my uncle. Maybe six times I was struck by the force. And uh, some people might describe that as a calling. And I don't have a full understanding of the force, but... um, I know it exists, and it's bigger than me. What does it tell you to do? Or is it not like a, an action? Is it more of like a... It tells me to uh, stay on course and uh, have uh, kindness be at the forefront of my being. Um, to always serve something or someone. Um... It tells me to um, stay on course with uh, fidelity, with um, <clears throat> uh, commitment, uh, the best arrangement. It's, it's my guiding light. Um, maybe another way to describe it is enlightenment. Um, and I think the best artists uh, have been enlightened somehow along the way. I can't imagine uh, Bob Marley not having been enlightened somewhere along the way mm-hmm. for him to be able to uh, deliver what he did. Um, I think Eno was enlightened along the way. Um, most of me, I've worked with Jimmy Cliff in Jamaica and uh, uh, the force I felt around him was unbelievable. That was a very enlightened person. Um, and uh, I've been lucky enough to be in the presence of people that have been enlightened uh, in my absence you know, they, they came to, into my life having been enlightened already. And I, so the, uh, the force that they had in them jumped on me. Um, how could you make a record with Bob Dylan and not feel uh, what he went through or, or um, came to? Um, and so to be sitting in a chair next to uh, an enlightened person, it jumps on you. And only a fool would not notice it. So I'm very well aware of the force. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. You know, one, thanks for uh, letting me borrow some of your force for the last (laughs) hour. You know, I mean, I I do think that's that's part of why we started doing these conversations is that, you know, who's, who's more enlightened than the people who are sell you know i always say they sell some musicians sell air for a living 
You know, like who are who are these people who can create seemingly nothing or can create something from nothing on something a daily from nothing. I'm on glad a, you said that. On a daily basis. On a daily basis. We start a, with nothing. You, there's you know, you look at a piano and there's just so much potential right there to yeah. your to your side. <laughs> you know? And and there's no question if you played one note on out of the you know, any any note on that keyboard, and my guess is the people in this room could create a song off of it. Whether it's good or not, <laughs> arguable. Whether it's you know impactful, you know whether people ever hear it, totally irrelevant. Well, it wouldn't be hard to get something going, that's for sure. And uh, and we pr- probably be all smart enough to say, oh, that that one little part there, that, yeah. that, let's let's make a riff out of that, yeah. and then we built a yeah. get going. We we don't require a lot. Uh, as as creators of music, um, um. well, I think the final two things I would say in you know the the for me to get to spend time with somebody who created so much music that coincides with my lifetime that was so influential in my lifetime it's it's obviously an honor, but you know the it's it's rare to um, to be around people who created music that is, in a way, business-wise, this doesn't sound sexy, but commercially viable rather than creating a song that can be produced into music. For some reason, these the when you would when it, I mentioned something like Sledgehammer or something or some of these songs, <laughs> they're not. They're just not cookie cutter, and that mm. that what you said from, you know, what you learned about throwing a little dirt on it, you know, <laughs> making something unique. You do do that on all of these songs. Can really I, impressive. Can I uh, tell you a little trick? How yeah, please. All right. So we'll use Sledgehammer as a, as a as a point of reference. Um, we were playing to fix time, a little beatbox, boom, boom, boom. You know, pretty mm-hmm. simple thing. And um, we recorded the song as we had planned. And we kept the box going. And then at the end, we just kept playing and it started getting a little more free and people started jamming. Looking at Peter. Kick the habit. Shed that skin, this is the new stuff. We go dancing and show for me and I'll show for you. Wow! And the whole room went crazy because we, we had done the song. So this was a chance to have a little bit of fun. And P- Peter really went for it with the vocals. <laughs> he was just having so much, such a good time. And then uh, everybody went home and then I listened back. That Yeah, the track was pretty good, but the end was the best stuff. <laughs> of course. And so uh, we took the best stuff at the end and brought it to the front, and uh, that was a big part of the forming of that song. So what's the lesson there? Well, when we, uh, when we start having a good time and, and, you know, we like to be responsible, but if we've been responsible, it's okay to have a good time and something good may come out of it. And I have some other examples if you want to hear them. <laughs> um, I mean, sure. Why don't you give a couple more and then Well, I'll... okay, uh, uh Beautiful Day by U2. Um, 
we had been bashing this thing around for a while, and uh, it, it hadn't really gotten to the magic place yet. And then uh, uh, Eno and I always come into the studio early, and he uh, he dialed up this little beat, a little kind of German beatbox beat. And then uh, then, I, then I played this little guitar part, ding, 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 which was just a harmony above what Edge had written the day before. Um, and we built this little track quite quickly. And then the band came in. I said, what's this? I said, well, this is your song. Oh. And they plugged in, everybody <laughs> jumped in, and then we started playing to this this electro backing. And uh, then it was time for lunch because Bono was getting hungry. And he's, and he, the sun was shining and uh, come through the window and he said, And it's a beautiful day, let's not let it get away. Beautiful day, don't let it get away. He kept saying that, you know, it's a beautiful day, maybe we should just go for lunch. And uh, we went for lunch. And Eno and I came back downstairs. And said, oh, this little beautiful day thing's got something. And Bono's, he's done it again. <laughs> the kid's done it again. And we took, same thing, took the stuff at the end and brought it to the, to the front and built a chorus out of it. Um, so sometimes it's just that one little thing will trigger, uh, will we'll speak the truth. <laughs> Man's got to eat. Um, wow, well... You know, again, thanks for that. I was going to say the other thing is the fact that, you know, your creative uh, spigot is not turned off. You know, you're, oh, you're still you're still creating. And as somebody who's been making music is the only thing that I know how to do in my life. It's nice to see that that we can keep doing yeah. that for as long as we want. Yeah, well, uh, let's just that's. A very sweet thought, and we know no other way. And and uh, that virus doesn't get us, man. Look out, because the hits are going to keep on coming. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, my brother. Thanks for listening to this episode of And the Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 